My name is Glenn Walter. I'm president-elect of the Friends of the Library, and I'm here to welcome you to Brown Bag Green Book. Uh, Jesse Fox Mayshark is the managing editor of Metro Pulse, and he's going to be discussing Climate Cover-Up, The Crusade to Deny Global Warming by James Hagen. Mr. Mayshark. Thanks. Um, First of all, thanks a lot to everybody uh, for coming out. Uh, my office is literally across the street from here, so I guarantee every single one of you came farther than I did to get here, so I appreciate that. So I'll tell you what we're looking at here. Uh, this is a, uh, a film that was made in the early 1990s. It's about 30 minutes long, and, and you can watch the whole thing on YouTube. But it starts out with this very dramatic introduction kind of showing you uh, industrialization, and there's all these uh, pictures of, of smokestacks and, and sort of, uh, you know, pollution and this idea that we're, we're pumping more and more carbon dioxide. It, you know, it keeps giving these ever higher numbers, parts per million of carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere, parts per billion. What, what it's trying to do is make you think that it's about how dangerous this is, how we're polluting the world. That kind of goes through this for about a minute, and then it says, what does this mean for the planet? And then it cuts to this great sequence of apparent experts, scientists, people with doctor in, doctor in front of their name, who all say, this is great. This is going to be fantastic. More carbon dioxide. Do you know what that means for plants? Plants feed on carbon dioxide. There's a, there's a cotton farmer who says, we're going to see cotton like you've never seen before. And then it leads up to uh, this title page, and, and the film is called The Greening of Planet Earth. And that's the message of this 30-minute movie, is that the ever-increasing amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere are good. They're going to be good for all of us. They're going to be good for plants. Okay, so um, this movie, which is discussed briefly in the book that we're talking about today, Climate Cover-Up by James Hagen, as he details, it was produced by a group called the Greening Earth Society, which, in keeping with the sort of buoyant tone of the film, is a very friendly-sounding group name. The thing is, the Greening Earth Society it was a very small organization, really existed only on paper, and it was created in the early 1990s by an organization called the Western Fuels Association. And as you might expect from their name, Western Fuels Association, uh, it's, it's a coal and power cooperative that still exists. You can go to their website. Uh, it's, it's basically energy companies, utility companies serving uh, the Great Plains, Rocky Mountains, and, and southwestern states. And this movie is an early example, and, and really from our current perspective, maybe a sort of primitive almost Example of efforts by energy producers and other corporate interests to kind of, uh, over the last few decades, to try to shape and influence the discussion of climate change and of the science around climate change and of uh, policy discussions around climate change. And, and in this movie, you see things that Hagen talks about in his book and that, frankly, if you've been paying attention over the last many years to the public discussion of this, uh, you kind of see over and over again. First of all, it, it tries to directly challenge something that people think they already know. In this case, it's that we're polluting the atmosphere. We can see it. You know, you have smokestacks. It shows you the clips. Obviously, we're pumping lots of stuff into the air. 
it, it doesn't try to deny that. It doesn't try to say that's not happening. But then once it kind of gets you on that playing field where you say, okay, right, yes, we're, we're doing this. Then it says, but wait a minute. Do you really know what's going on here? Is it really what you think it is? And that's a, a lot of what this book talks about is efforts by uh, energy producers and then they're, they're kind of surrogates in the public relations industry, lobbyists in Washington, uh, friendly politicians in the United States, mostly from kind of big energy uh, states, to not say that this isn't happening, not say that we're not putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. For a long time, there was this idea that, well, maybe the, the planet's not really warming. In more recent years, as, as Hagen points out in his book, even that has shifted. They're, they're not saying that because they, they watch the polls very closely. And so every time those poll numbers go up, if more and more people believe that the Earth is getting warmer, then past a point, you don't want to try to tell them something that they think is true. What you try to do is say that what you think you know about this is not really the case. And so in the case of of this film, it's that you think putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is bad. It looks dirty, but it's good for plants. Did you know plants eat carbon dioxide? Of course we know plants. Like we've all been through fifth grade, third grade science, wherever you learn that, right? But, you know, it kind of tries to to twist that. And, And so this is what Hagen is talking about in this book, and this is the cover-up that he details in it. The book is not exactly an expose. I mean, it's mostly a a kind of collection of work that's been done by other people over the past 20 years, um, reporters and uh, scientists and and researchers who have, in, in case after case after case, gone after and confronted these attempts by, again, mostly energy producers, mostly energy companies, corporate interests, and so forth, to try to hold them accountable for the information or or really kind of misinformation that that they're putting forth. Um, Another thing that this film does that, that Hagen talks about in the book and that you see over and over again, there's this parade of experts. There's this parade of, of people who seem like they know what they're talking about. They have a credential of some kind. And they're presented as scientists. And a lot of them are scientists. And, and one point that Hagen makes is that the, the sort of anti, I don't know what you call them, the anti-climate change Lobby, the lobby that is trying to get people not to worry so much about climate change, about polluting the atmosphere, has been very good at enlisting people who sound good on paper, who look good on paper, who, who have a Ph.D. A very small percentage of the American population has Ph.D.s, and we're kind of conditioned to see a Ph.D. of any kind, to see a doctor in front of a name as you know, sort of carrying authority with it. And, and so there's been this real attempt to bring together people who are willing to lend their name and their credential to what is essentially a huge multi-billion dollar, decades-long public relations effort um, to forestall any real significant uh, policy action on, on climate change. And that's the cover-up that, that Hagen is talking about. Now, a, a lot of what, what he's talking about is not quite as blatant as this movie. 
uh, like I said, it looks kind of primitive from our current standpoint. Uh, you know, we're, we're maybe a little bit at this point. This was made in 1992 or 93. At this point in, in this on this issue, we're kind of past being, you know, quite quite so uh, happy talked into thinking that hey, everything's great. But what he really lays out is, is a decades-long effort to, at every turn, create as much doubt as possible. And that's really the, the currency that this entire public relations campaign has trafficked in for the last couple of decades, is doubt. It's, it's you know, where they can, they, they will produce one study or another or st- cite some research or other that they say, you know, shows the opposite, that the earth is getting colder or that, you know, the Antarctic sea ice is actually growing, not shrinking, that kind of thing. But mostly what it's about is not contradicting the existing science so much as just creating a certain amount of uncertainty and haziness in the public discussion of the science. You know, one thing that I kind of like about this book is that there's a a sense of outrage in it. Hagen is incensed about all of this, but but it's a kind of restrained, like, genteel outrage. And I'm going to stereotype a little bit here. I think this is where his Canadianism comes in. James Hagen is actually a public relations executive himself uh, from Vancouver, and he, he is angry about this issue. He co-founded a blog called the Desmog Blog, which a lot of this book is drawn from, that day after day after day, it's a good blog, you know, if you want to keep track of sort of every fresh outrage in, in this thing, it's a great blog because they just, every time there's some new report, every time there's some new effort, they jump on it and they do what they can to kind of expose who's behind it, who's funding it, and so forth. His anger over and over kind of takes the form of, of this you know, head-shaking exasperation. Like he just can't believe how unreasonable everybody is being about this, which I, I think is – it gives the book a, a very civil tone. It also sometimes, from my view, makes him seem a little bit naive. I guess this is partly because as a reporter I've spent – years dealing with uh, the public relations industry in various forms. And, and hey, there are wonderful PR people out there. Some of my best friends are PR people. Uh, for a reporter, a good PR person is a wonderful resource. They can get you information you're looking for. They can put you in touch with people who you know otherwise might not return your calls and so forth. But, of course, there's lots of different kinds of public relations out there. And the kind of public relations that he's talking about in this book and that he, as a public relations executive himself, is, is really outraged about is the kind of public relations that not only doesn't want to be helpful and help you get the information you want, uh, they want to obscure that information as much as possible, not answer the questions that you want answered and answer the question that they kind of wish you had asked them. And he does not and this is something that I think is important to say, he doesn't talk about the science in this book. He's not a scientist. He's, he's a public relations guy. And he takes as a given what the scientific consensus is. And the scientific consensus on, on global warming, on climate change, is very clear. The earth is warming, and I, I think the most recent estimate they gave was there's like a 90% chance that human activity is you know, the primary culprit in this. He accepts that. He doesn't talk about the science. He doesn't debate the science. Uh, he takes it as a given that this is what science says, and here are the different ways people are responding to the science. Um, obviously, I'm not a scientist 
either I also accept the scientific consensus on climate change in the same way that I accept the scientific consensus on evolution and lots of other things. So if anybody came here today hoping to get into a good argument about the data, you're probably in the wrong place because I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm not your guy. Uh, there's, there's plenty of places out there to find that. Obviously, the, uh, the reports of the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change would be the, the place to start. But the point that he makes is that a great number of people who, who write and talk about climate change and about global warming are also not scientists. They are politicians and they are lobbyists, they are journalists, um, and they are PR people. And, and so you know, I'll talk about each of those categories a little bit and give a, a few examples of the kinds of things that, that he cites in the book. Like, like I said, Hagen is a PR guy himself, and, and he's not just some touchy-feely, hey, I only work with cuddly, nonprofit sort of PR guys. If you go to his website, he's got a long list of corporate clients. He's worked for Alcoa. He's worked for uh, A&W, Century 21. He's worked for Shell. But he has a strong personal code of ethics that he talks about in the book. And there actually is, I, I didn't know this, there, there is a professional public relations code of ethics. And he thinks that public relations people should abide by it. As he says on page two, I think that PR is a good thing. It connects people and builds understanding. And I have a high regard for my professional colleagues. He gives a summary of his own advice to clients on how to maintain or restore uh, their reputations, their good name in dealing with the public. He says, number one, do the right thing. Number two, be seen to be doing the right thing. And number three, don't get number one and number two mixed up, by which I mean always make sure that you're doing the right thing for its own sake and not for the reputational advantage you might gain which is very idealistic. And he kind of talks, he gives a brief history, which, which is pretty interesting, of, of the modern public relations industry, tracing its roots to pioneers like Ivy Lee and Edward Bernays in the early 20th century. And he, he talks about their own ethics codes and how they very much believe this too, that this was the thing they would tell their clients. You know, first be sure you're right and then tell people that you're right. But uh, he also pretty quickly admits that they broke those codes themselves. Ivy Lee did some uh, spin doctoring for the Rockefeller family in 1914 during standoff at uh, Mines in Colorado, where uh, Colorado State Militia and company guards killed 22 people, including 11 children. And in the, in the early 1930s, Ivy Lee was hired by a German company to try to encourage warmer relations between the United States and the new Nazi government. Edward Bernays, who's also sort of like the co-father of modern public relations, uh, one of his early coups was campaigns that equated um, women's liberation in the 1920s and 30s um, with smoking. Hey, you're free now. Have a cigarette. And uh, in the 1950s, Bernays was involved in doing work for the United Fruit Company, which was really government propaganda work against the government of Guatemala at the time that kind of helped lay the groundwork for the CIA coup that overthrew the Guatemalan government in the 1950s and led to decades and decades of slaughter that are still really resonating today. So these are the guys who founded the industry, and, and Hagen kind of admits, you know, it's, it's a spotty track record. You know, given all that, it's kind of funny that in the book he still, every time there's some fresh example of some public relations company blatantly lying, he's a little bit shocked by it, which is good, I guess. You know, it's nice to know that there are public relations people out there who really are, are appalled by that kind of thing. 
but he, he does a good job of exposing and explaining some of their tactics. One example that I liked was another effort by the same group that did this movie, the Western Fuels Association. They ran some focus groups in the early 1990s. People were starting to talk about global warming. Time Magazine had done a cover story. Al Gore was talking about it. The Clinton administration was making noises about it, so they knew that something might be coming down the pike. Kyoto Protocol was, was in the works. So they wanted to kind of test out some messages and see, see what would work. So they went to four cities across the country and ran focus groups, uh, Champaign, Illinois, Flagstaff, Arizona, Fargo, North Dakota, and Chattanooga. According to Hagen, they picked these cities because those cities, quote, got most of their electricity from coal. They each were home to a member of the U.S. House of Representatives Energy and Commerce or Ways and Means Committees, and they had low media costs, which meant that it was going to be cheap to test their national campaign. So what they did was they asked these focus groups a series of questions. Things like, if the earth is getting warmer, why is Minneapolis getting colder? Or if the earth is getting warmer, why is the frost line moving south? Hagen notes that that these were not true statements. They were basically the opposite of, of what was really going on. But the point was to figure out what kind of language would be most effective at kind of planting seeds in someone's mind so that the next time they were at some party or they saw something on TV or whatever and someone was talking about global warming, they would say, well, wait a minute. I heard that Minneapolis was getting colder. It's this kind of almost intangible approach that, as Hagen says, has really been very effective at just kind of creating a, a cloud of uncertainty. You know, polls show a lot of people have a sense that there is uncertainty about climate change, uh, that the science isn't settled. People will say these kinds of things. And if you press people on this, a lot of times they don't know what the uncertainty is. They might not even say something as specific as, I heard Minneapolis is getting colder. They just have this kind of sense that it's out there, which is really the goal of, of this kind of public relations campaign. Just just kind of get it out, whether it's in a newspaper editorial or, or an ad or feeding talking points to a talk radio host or whatever. Just make sure that people hear it somewhere. Another sort of more specific form of disinformation is, uh, which is also was used in that video clip, is the uh, assemblage of expert or expert-seeming voices that support or seem to support the idea that there is still a lot of uncertainty about climate change. Uh, there are different varieties of this. One of the major ones is the petition, and kind of the, the most famous or notorious of these, which is still out there circulating, people are still linking to it, you can find it online, is, is a petition promoted by an outfit called the Heartland Institute, which is a conservative libertarian think tank in Chicago, uh, sort of first came to public prominence in the 1990s when they were trying to debunk the dangers of secondhand smoke after having received a lot of funding from uh, Philip Morris Company. And when that eventually became a losing cause, they kind of they branched into climate change issues with the assistance of something like $800,000 from ExxonMobil. Uh, one thing that's difficult about all of this, which Hagen points out, is that a lot of these think tanks and these quasi-scientific organizations that put out these reports 
will not disclose their funding. They say it's a, you know, it's a matter of privacy. They want to protect people from environmental wackos who might come blow up their SUVs or whatever. But really, obviously, they're trying to just make it hard to find out who is actually paying them to say the things that they're saying. But the Heartland Institute took out a series of ads in various magazines asserting that more than 34,000, quote, scientists, unquote, had signed a petition saying that, quote, global warming probably is natural and not a crisis, unquote. The petition was actually put together by a different organization. The Heartland Institute is just linking to it and, and kind of promoting it. Uh, the group that put it together is called the Oregon Institute of Science and Medicine, which Hagen describes as, quote, a farm shed situated a couple of miles outside of Cave Junction, Oregon, population 17,000. In addition to its founder, chemist Arthur Robinson, the Oregon Institute lists six faculty members, two of whom are dead and two of whom are Robinson's 20-something sons. Um, but this institute and their petition, which has been circulating for years, uh, is one of sort of the major clubs that climate change skeptics have, have used to kind of beat up people at congressional hearings and, and various other places by saying 34,000 scientists have signed a petition. The institute has repeatedly refused to provide contact information for any of those 34,000 scientists, uh, but in 2006, Scientific American decided to make a stab at it. And Hagen quotes from the Scientific American article in their book, but basically they took a sample of, at, at the time, this was in 2006, there were only 17,000 signatures. It's doubled since then. But So they took a sample of those 17,000. They took 1,000, like 1,400 signatures or so. These were supposedly scientists, so they started Googling them, trying to find out who they were, where they were, whatever. They basically ended up only being able to identify and locate about 30 or so of, of the names on this list. And of those that they were able to track down, less than half of them, I think about 11 of them, said that, yes, they still agreed with the petition. Now, these were not necessarily climate scientists is the other point. Of those 30, one of them was a climate scientist uh, who had produced no major research in any peer-reviewed publication. But even at that, only 11 of those 30 said they still agreed with the petition. Six of them said they had changed their mind. Three or four of them said they'd never even heard of the petition, and a couple of them were dead or, or couldn't be reached. So kind of extrapolating from that number that they were able to find, they estimated that maybe on this entire list there were 200 climate scientists and nobody, not a single name on the list, could they find had ever produced any climate research that had ever been published in a peer-reviewed publication. So you go from 34,000 names on a list to zero credible scientists on the issue of climate change. But it doesn't matter if you are ExxonMobil, because most people are not going to do that. Most people are not even going to bother to find out what the Heartland Institute is, much less who's running this petition, who the Oregon Institute is, and then who any of these people on the list are. You see that number, 34,000, even if you're inclined to think, oh, well, that's kind of spin, you know, even if you think, well, probably only 10% of them, you know, are real scientists who are skeptical, you would still be estimating 3,400, and you would be off by a factor of, you know, 3,400 people. Um, 
and and that's what they that's the goal that's that's exactly the methodology here uh, the other form that this can take is citing real research done by real scientists um, but then basically just saying it says something that it doesn't say and one example Hagen gives is uh, again uh, the Heartland Institute's website published a paper a few years ago titled 500 scientists whose research contradicts man-made global warming scares now Hagen and the people at his blog got very suspicious of this because they knew the names of most of the major sort of industry apologists who, who were involved in, in this whole thing. And those weren't the names on the list. And some of the names on the list were real scientists, people whose names they knew, whose work they were aware of. Uh, they, they thought, wait a minute. So they set about trying to contact them. And this is on page 95. It's worth uh, quoting. He says, within 48 hours, we had 45 responses all expressing a similar type of outrage. The following are emails received during the last week of April 2008. Quote, I am horrified to find my name on such a list. I've spent the last 20 years arguing the opposite. That's Dr. David Sugden of the University of Edinburgh, professor of geography. Quote, I don't believe any of my work can be used to support any of the statements listed in the article. That's Dr. Robert Whitaker, professor of biogeography at the University of Oxford. Quote, I'm outraged that they've included me as an author of this report. I do not share the views expressed in the summary. That's Dr. John Clegg, professor of earth sciences at Simon Fraser University. So again, of all the people they were able to get in touch with off of this list, none of them said this is what they believed. Not one. But again, if you're the Heartland Institute and if you're ExxonMobil, it doesn't matter. Because who's going to do that? The Dismog blog is going to do that. And the people who are inclined to read the Dismog blog are going to read about this. But those aren't the people that any of this information is aimed at. It's aimed at sort of like the great amorphous middle that can be swayed one way or another, depending on their mood or the most recent thing they heard about it. And so 34,000 scientists believe this. 500 scientists say this. None of it's true, but if, if there's enough money and momentum behind it, uh, it can still get into the public discussion. And so then he traces how that happens. Not surprisingly, politicians are a very good vehicle for moving a lot of this stuff from its home on the Heartland Institute website in, into the public dialogue. And I don't mean to insult any of the politicians here in the room. Uh, but there are there are some who, who are sort of reliable conduits for this. Hagen cites politicians like Senator James Inhofe of Oklahoma, who during the years of the Republican majority uh, was chair of the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works, and he probably will be again if the Republicans get majority of the Senate again. Uh, he's from Oklahoma, obviously a big oil and gas state, and is on the record as calling global warming, quote, a hoax. As, as Hagen notes, Inhofe has repeatedly called to testify exactly the kinds of, quote, scientists, unquote, who have appeared in the various skeptics' reports and petitions, generally people with little or no actual background in climate science and no major published research on the subject. Uh, he also tells the story, which some of you might remember, it was in the papers just four or five years ago, of uh, Philip Cooney, a lawyer who became the Bush administration's chief of staff for the White House Council on Environmental Quality. Uh, his primary and really only qualification for this was that uh, previous to that he had been a lobbyist for the American Petroleum Institute. And his role, which it took several years to to come out but was uncovered by the New York Times and and other people, it was basically he reviewed every report that was prepared by the various scientific arms of the federal government under the Bush administration, particularly those that had to do with climate change. And 
He didn't stash them in a drawer. He didn't throw them in a garbage can. He, he didn't do any of those obvious things. It, sort of in keeping with this, this whole attempt to simply create uncertainty, he just added adjectives to things. And so they found all of these reports where there would be, you know, some sentence in the report that would say something like, uh, it can be difficult to determine the exact nature or effects of human uh, influence on the environment. And he would just throw the word extremely in there. It can be extremely difficult to, you know. Um, if, if he found someplace where it said uncertainties, he would insert uh, grave and significant before the word uncertainties. And the people who wrote these reports didn't see this until it was published, you know. And and the way it was eventually exposed was after a while, people started saying, well, wait a minute, what? You know, and, and uh, people started leaking them to the media and eventually... Uh, the Times was able to go back and trace all of this to the pen of this one guy, Philip Cooney, formerly of the American Petroleum Institute. Of course, by the time the Times wrote this story, he was out of the Bush administration and working for a conservative think tank in Washington called the Competitive Enterprise Institute. So I, it didn't, I think, hurt his career at all. And Hagen is also kind of hard on my own profession. Uh, he, he talks about what he calls uh, balance as bias. The tendency of reporters, especially confronted by complicated, controversial issues, especially if they're reporters who are sort of generalists, not necessarily specialists in climate change, which honestly, in the United States right now, there are probably five journalists who are really specialists in climate change. Elizabeth Colbert at The New Yorker, Andrew Revkin, who used to be at The New York Times, is now out on his own, probably three or four others who really know the science, who have really been covering it for years, have read all the reports and whatever. You know, a handful of people, almost everybody who writes about this stuff, myself included, we, we know what we read. We decide who we want to believe. But when you're dealing with an issue like this, there is this tendency and there's this institutional bias, as Hagen calls it, toward uh, wanting to be sure that all quote-unquote sides are represented. And if, if you're writing about a controversial issue and you know that it's controversial, even if you think that the controversy is kind of ginned up by people who have money to gain from promoting one, one view or another, you know, there's still the sense that, well, we got to at least call them. I've done this myself. The example I thought of was about 10 years ago for Metropolis. I wrote a story about uh, organic farming, which was really just kind of starting to go mainstream. And you're starting to see a lot of organic food in, in the stores. And there were a bunch of small organic farms that were starting up around Knoxville. Most of my story was just going and talking to the local organic farmers. I, I would say the overall bent of the story was probably very pro-organic farming, I guess, in that it mostly talked to people who did it and thought it was beneficial. But, you know, I knew that there were some naysayers about organic farming, and I kind of went and read various things about it, and I found a scientist, an actual agricultural scientist, um, who was sort of one of the most prominent skeptics, and I thought, well, you know, I have all these people talking about how great this is. I should probably call this guy. Now, in reading about him, I knew that his research was primarily funded by Monsanto, uh, because that had been exposed by various environmental blogs and, and so forth. So it, it wasn't that I went into it not knowing who he was, and when I interviewed him and got all of his statements about how dangerous organic farming was, and oh my God, the things, the, the bugs that are going to be on there, the things that, the manure that's going to be on there that you're not going to be able to wash out, blah, 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 blah. You know, I asked him, well, you, you get a lot of money from Monsanto, right? And he was really offended. You know, oh, doesn't that, are you suggesting that influences my scientific research? 
Um, I said, no, I'm just asking, you know. And, and so when I wrote the story, I noted that in quoting him. Here's this guy. He gets funny from Monsanto. Here's what he has to say. So I did what I felt like was the best I could in, in kind of trying to be as clear as I, I could about where he was coming from. Nevertheless, he was, you know, he had a couple of paragraphs in the story. There were a couple of quotes in there that if you were just breezing through it and happened on that one quote, you might think, whoa, organic food sounds dangerous. So I, I was obviously providing a bit of a platform to him. I, and I understand Hagen's concern with this, and, and I share it. But this is a difficult thing, and, and this is a limit of journalism, especially if it's not going to be outright advocacy journalism, if you're not writing just an opinion piece. If there are a lot of loud voices out there that are screaming and yelling something, even if you know that they were paid for by this very strong vested interest in the issue, if you don't at least acknowledge them, then you run the risk of either A, looking like you don't really know the issue that well because you're not even aware they're there, or B, that you're overly favoring the other side by just completely ignoring these guys. So I I don't know what the answer to that is from a journalism standpoint. I think one answer, honestly, is things like what James Hagen is doing with his blog, because he's not a journalist exactly, and that's true of a lot of bloggers who are sort of single-issue bloggers. But there are a lot of good blogs out there right now that are very dedicated to a whole range of issues. And they become very good source of information for people like me who are going to write about something. And so if I was going to talk to people about climate change, you know, I would probably look at the Desmog blog and, and some other resources to, to try to get a sense of who these people were before I went and talked to them and to understand the issue better. But your, your kind of mainstream journalism model that, that those of us who do it have been practicing for a couple hundred years now is definitely vulnerable to well-funded and, and well-organized interest groups who want to get their point of view into the media. We will probably reflect them one way or another. One thing about Hagen's book that I find a little dispiriting is that he ends it on sort of an optimistic note. He goes through all of this, but he kind of talks about how by the end of the Bush administration, a lot of the kind of skepticism and the denial tactics were kind of on their last legs. And I remember that period. It seems like a long time ago. There was an exhaustion with the Bush administration and kind of everything that they were involved with, including foot dragging on dealing with climate change. I remember, because I like to read the National Review blog online to kind of find out what angry people on the right are saying. I remember even people on the National Review blog, there were some prominent names over there, started to say, you know, maybe we should, maybe it's time to throw in the towel on this climate change thing. Like, the science is really clear. We can argue for policies that we like better in dealing with it. And that's where the whole, let's fight for a cap and trade instead of a carbon tax and all that kind of stuff. There started to be this sense of acceptance. Frank Luntz, really prominent Republican pollster who for years had been polling on this issue, started telling Republicans, you know, you might want to back off on, on the hoax stuff. Like, the, the general public, at that point, you know, close to 60% of people believe that climate change was real, was human-caused, and needed a policy, you know, solution. But then the economy went to hell. A new administration came in. You, you had these, you know, intramural fighting going on in the Republican Party. And what we've seen has happened is on the right, basically, the hardliners are in ascendance. It's interesting that you go from 
the first George Bush in 1988, and Hagen quotes this, when the first talk about climate change starts to come out, George Bush comes out and says, you know, this is a major concern and we're going to do something about it. It's hard to imagine a Republican president or presidential candidate saying that kind of thing now, and they don't have a really good reason to. This book came out in 2009, and so he was still kind of coasting on the glow, I think, of the end of the Bush administration, Obama coming in, everything was going to be great for environmentalists and whatever. In 2010, last year, Gallup did their annual update on Americans' attitudes toward the environment, and they said it shows the public that over the last two years, just two years, 2008 to 2010, has become less worried about the threat of global warming, less convinced that its effects are already happening, and more likely to believe that scientists themselves are uncertain about its occurrence. In response to one key question, 48% of Americans now believe that the seriousness of global warming is generally exaggerated. That's up from 41% in 2009 and 31% in 1997 when Gallup first asked questions. So public opinion on this has actually moved. As the actual science on climate change has become more and more certain with ever more sweeping statements from the sort of global community of climate scientists, public opinion, at least in the United States, has gone in the other direction. And that is largely because of exactly the kind of efforts, uh, widespread, well-funded, and successful, that Hagen talks about in this book. I'm going to close with a quote from just four weeks ago. This was the current Republican frontrunner, Rick Perry, speaking to a crowd in New Hampshire in August. He says, I do believe that the issue of global warming has been politicized which is kind of a funny thing for a Republican Texas governor to say. And he goes on to say, I think there are a substantial number of scientists who have manipulated data so they will have dollars rolling into their projects. I think we're seeing it almost weekly or even daily, scientists who are coming forward and questioning the original idea that man-made global warming is what is causing the climate to change. Yes, our climate's changed. They've been changing ever since the Earth was formed. This isn't true. There there is not, almost weekly or even daily, scientists coming forward and questioning that original idea. The opposite is true. I mean, that that is a lie. No, No matter whether, you know, where you stand on the issue, to say that about the science is a lie. But this is the the front runner for the Republican nomination for president next year. So that's where we are. Um, that's all I have to say about it, unless anybody has anything else to say or ask. Or Jesse, the the balance bias issue seems like the only uh, only hope. And, and and as a journalist, you're 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 saying we can't do anything about it. Is is that? Uh, well, one thing I'd say about that, and, and I think that it's something that, sadly, non-journalists put too much faith in, is the ability of uh, good journalism to trump bad information. And I think Hagen, Hagen, who's not a journalist, obviously, he's a PR guy, I think he kind of shares that false hope. You know, the idea that if only, if only somebody told the people, you know, the reality is that e- even given the balance bias he talks about, there's an awful lot of good journalism that's out there. Like I said, there's, there's a relative handful of people who are experts, but those people are at prominent places. Andy Revkin at the New York Times was the most prominent science writer in America probably before he left the Times. There's tons of information out there, and 
I have found over and over and over again, um, to my initial chagrin and eventual shrug of resignation, that merely reporting the facts or, or the best approximation you can make of the facts on any given issue, you know, I don't think, it's not that it doesn't make a difference. I think it makes a difference. I think it's important. I wouldn't do it if I didn't think so. But it, it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't reverse tides. You know, it, so, it so who are the opinion leaders? It's, it's not Rick Perry, is it? Well, it, that's another thing is that there are a lot of opinion leaders, and that's something that I think Hagen doesn't, uh, maybe, again, because he's Canadian and isn't as attuned to sort of American political dynamics, he doesn't pay maybe enough attention to. You have opinion leaders on the left. You have opinion leaders on the right. You have, you know, opinion leaders who are Oprah. You have all, all sorts of different kinds of people. What has happened from... You know, my own observations with climate change is that it has turned into a, a sort of boilerplate box that has to be checked by people who identify themselves with one particular political ideology. And, you know, all political ideologies have that. There, there are boxes you have to check if you want to be a liberal. There are boxes you have to check if you want to be a conservative. Climate change, mostly through the efforts that we're talking about here, became one of those boxes so that people 10 years ago who might not have had an opinion on it, now it's part of the identity. If you are a free market Republican, you doubt the science behind climate change. Or even if you don't doubt the science behind climate change, you say that you do because that's part of the package now. It becomes one of those things where the more you hear from the other side, quote-unquote, whether that's the New York Times or, or a scientist, because that's, that's one thing. As, as you have Rick Perry saying here, he thinks scientists are manipulating data. You know, this is, it's a nice thing. If you, don't trust the science, if you don't want to deal with the science, attack the scientists. Everything you hear from the other side just becomes sort of a test of your own faith. And it's not going to change your mind. It just reinforces your need to kind of stand up against it. As I'm listening to this, I'm, I'm feeling fatigued. And I think that we're all suffering from disaster fatigue. And even if we get the facts about climate change, we feel paralyzed about what we can do. Um, I have a friend who's a clinical psychologist, and she explained to me that when we hear about disasters that kill millions of people, we're less likely to act than if we hear about two or three people. And I wonder if... You know, yeah, well, no, I think that that's, that is definitely uh, – it's a real challenge for people who are involved in this issue, I think, um, is that on the one hand, the threat of climate change, if you, which is hard. You know, nobody's out there saying we know exactly what's going to happen. It's hard to specify. There, there's a lot of different things that could happen, a lot of bad things that could happen. But it's kind of it's, – it's a little bit vague. It's a little hard to define until it happens. And it's also sort of broad and amorphous. And then you hear, oh, it's going to affect people most in, you know, low-lying third-world countries. Yeah, if you live in East Tennessee, I'm sorry. That's not your – you know, however much a humanitarian you are, that just doesn't ring bells the same way things closer to home do. And on the other hand, the interests that are threatened by actually taking action on it are very specific and are very, very well organized and very well motivated. There is no fatigue on the part of, you know, ExxonMobil. I am just sort of guessing here, but there's probably, there's probably a whole shelf full of reports at ExxonMobil analyzing all of this over the last 20 years with their own people saying, look, here's what's probably going to happen. Eventually, there's going to be a carbon tax, there's going to be cabin trade, there's going to be this, that, and the other thing, and it's going to cost us this much. We'll survive. 
But every year that we keep that from happening, we make $10 billion, $20 billion or whatever. You know, 10 or $20 billion a year is plenty of motivation to keep fighting it and drag it out for as long as you can. And, and you're right. The other side gets tired, and they're not making 10 or $20 billion a year doing it. So I, I think that the, the only real answer to that is that the only thing that, that you know, makes things change is people continuing to, to fight for them and, and work for them. That's the only thing that ever has and it's been true of every sort of major clash between, you know, big corporate interests and, and environmental interests or any other interest in, in history. It's interesting, you know, you can go back and read accounts from the civil rights movement. There were people in the 50s who were saying, man, we are so tired of this. We've been fighting this for decades. But, you know, there wasn't really any choice except to keep doing it. And so I'm just somebody who reads about this stuff. I've written occasional environmental articles here and there. I'm, I'm one of those generalist journalists. I like to write about lots of different things. I've always had a huge amount of respect for the people who pick one issue they really care about, and they just stay dedicated to it for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, even if it's just you know moving the bar that much, or even if you see like those Gallup polls going the opposite direction from what you want. But I, I think that's probably the only thing that's, that's going to do it, ultimately. I'm an earth scientist, and I'm just extremely frustrated about where we are. You know, and this book is a perfect example, I guess, of how uh, the misinformation is getting out there. It's, uh, it's, you get tired, you know, with uh, no, no or limited money behind you to get the right message out against uh, a few that have a lot of money behind them that get the wrong message out. I feel like a failure as a scientist. Somehow we've got to get a different message out because this is a this is a catastrophe for our uh, future generations well i i do think you know one thing i've I've heard from a number of scientists on on a lot of different issues unfortunately this isn't the only issue where science is sort of under perpetual assault but i i know some scientists who feel like doing the research teaching the classes and those things is essential but it's not enough and that some kind of public role, public engagement. For example, at, at the University of Tennessee, there's a, there's a good example with uh, they have the annual Darwin Day celebration, uh, celebrating Darwin's birthday and talking about the history of evolutionary biology. And they, they do seminars for high school teachers to come in and learn how to teach about it and so forth. And that started because in 1996, there was you know yet another attempt by the state legislature to restrict the teaching of evolution. And some scientists there just said, damn it, <laughs> you know, we need to do something about this. And, you know, I don't know that doing that one thing every year, how much of a difference does it make? But it probably, it probably helps the people who come to it, the high school science teachers who come to it. I think probably any level, level of public engagement is valuable. I know the hard part about that is that unlike the PR people who are being paid lots of money to just go out and do this, you don't get tenure for that, and you don't get – it doesn't count as a publication when you write an op-ed in the New Sentinel, but I think those things are, are probably valuable. I mean, what possible agenda could scientists have? To me, it, it's not fair to accept the chemistry science on drugs and things that you need and not accept what scientists are saying as a consensus on climate change or evolution or whatever – you can't pick and choose. If you're sick, you go to the doctor. If you want to know about climate change, ask an earth scientist, yep. a climate scientist. Well, and, and, you know, the charge that's made that, that Rick Perry made right there is people make money doing These scientists are getting paid to do that research. You tell me that's not a bias? I mean, 
it, that's not much of an answer, but it, it's enough for a presidential candidate, I guess. Well, I agree with you that uh, for most of us, it's not so much the data per se that's convincing, but really how it fits into our preconceived notions. And so to me, that would indicate that that's where we have to go back to. Just as an example, the whole idea um, of what Exxon and them are trying to do is premised on the idea of endless exponential economic growth, on technical fixes for any problems. Uh, you know, there's, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars how to sequester CO2 in your shoebox and things like that. Uh, on the other hand, there's another thing that people actually have experience with. We don't know all the science. We don't know all the statistics or how to read them, but we have experience in our daily lives. How often does technology fix things or add extra problems? How sustainable are certain kinds of things and rates of growth and so forth? And so uh, those underlying models of how the world works is one way to try to get back at at these things and help people understand how to filter that information. Yeah, and and I think um, one key thing that you said there is people's daily lives. If you can find ways to connect to that, that's something that was very successful about the organic food movement and I think is also successful about the the sort of uh, locavore movement is that there you're talking about something very personal, what people actually physically put into their own bodies. People want to eat healthy food. You start with the assumption that people want to eat things that are good for them and that taste good, then you've got a really nice, easy connection. Climate change is obviously, again, a little more abstract, a little more, well, it was kind of hot last summer. I mean, of course, that's not what it's really about. But it's harder to make the direct connection uh, to people's daily lives. But I I agree that if you can find those points, that's, that's the easiest way to reach people. Yes, my name is Arvid Pasto. I'm a scientist. I retired from uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory after 24 years in 2007. I've been studying the global climate situation for quite a long time now. I spend about an hour a day, and I have a 230-plus PowerPoint slide presentation that I could kill you with. Uh, I've come to the conclusion that there's not a shred of evidence that man is influencing global climate. And... uh, I challenge the friends of the library to give me a chance to come to a forum like this and say that to you and prove it to you. Well, and like I said, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I can't argue the science. Okay, I, all, all I know is what the – if that's what your research says, that makes you a very, very small minority. It doesn't make you wrong. But that's right. That's if, if, I I'm, if I'm trying to weigh these things from the point of view of, of you know – uh, if you look at the methodology and the politics involved in the IPCC – that's that's not a body that was predisposed uh, for lots of reasons to be alarmist. It was constructed to not be alarmist, and it still came to the consensus it came to. So that's all I know because I'm not a scientist. Well, let me just point out two things. I deplore also the, uh, the public relations act- actions on both sides. Um, you may or may not know that somebody at Google discovered that if you put in climate change or global warming into Google, you get more skeptic answers than you get believer answers. Actually, that, that they is... They have hired 14 that, that's actually, to That's actually that. covered in, in this book, and there's an interesting section on that. Okay. And that's a number that James Inhofe, the senator from Oklahoma, actually cites. That particular issue is pretty roundly debunked in, in this, this book. I'd, I'd have here. to read that, because I believe that... The, that's an example of kind of the other side working their PR. And, of course, you may know that 
the Wikipedia man who was in charge of editing, if you will, all of the global climate stuff had to be fired because he had changed everything to make it look less positive. Well, yeah, w- Wikipedia has fights about a lot of things. <laughs> oh, yeah, I have a PhD in, in ceramic science. Okay. Something to do with climatology. I've never written any reports on climatology, and I've never been funded by a, a coal or gas company. Okay. Um, I'm Don Barger. I work for one of those cuddly nonprofit uh, organizations, the National Parks Conservation Association. I'm also not a scientist, but I'm afraid that the issue is worse than we might think. Far from being the kind of debate that Arvin is talking about and that we could and should be having, there is currently in front of Congress, in the middle of this appropriations mess, a set of anti-environmental riders, one of which deals with mountaintop removal, that essentially says in very unabashed language, you shall not use current science to create this policy. It's not trying to convince anyone that the science is right or wrong. It just says, we're not going to do it. So I think that the task we have in our society, it may be even greater than the author is suggesting, in getting back to the kind of things that that say, you know, we really need to decide how we're going to, to make these decisions and then decide the debates that we need to have. Um. Concerning when you wrote your uh, newspaper article, trying to be fair, I read uh, Naomi uh, Resky's book. She's, um, she's talked about a lot in this book, too. Uh, yeah. Merchants of Doubt, where she brought up the point of, of just the misuse, maybe, of the fairness doctrine about saying that, that in order to try to be fair with both sides, you end up giving both, I guess, weight. Yeah, and that's that's something that that Hagen talks about a little bit. You know, the example everybody loves to give is if you have you know one one guy who says the moon is a a rock in synchronous orbit around the Earth, blah 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 blah, and another guy who says it's made of Swiss cheese, that the the newspaper headline would be you know experts disagree on makeup of the moon. You know, I, I think that it's often not not quite that blatant, but especially on complicated issues. It's it's very hard, you know, especially if you, you do the best that you can to find people who seem like they know what they're talking about. But beyond that, you know, if I'm interviewing somebody who, from everything that I can tell, is an expert on something, and, and he says something that seems sort of plausible, you know, he's not trying to tell me zombies are walking the earth or something, I might fact check. If I have questions about it, I might fact check it as much as I can. But there is, again, a tendency to sort of say, well, we, we presented, we reported the controversy. And that's, that obviously works in favor of sort of the, the skeptics on any issue, whether it's evolution or organic farming or, or whatever. If, if you report the controversy, you're giving weight to people who don't believe something. Do you find yourself trying to maybe, like her point was, not to give equal to both yeah. parties, but to give the amount. Yeah. And, and I do think there's a journalistic responsibility to as clearly as possible state, you know, here's what they say, here's what they say, here's who they are, who's where they're from, and also here's what, you know, this guy says this, this guy says this, and 19 independent studies agree with this guy. You know, I think that's important to say. But, you know, again, time's short, space is tight, and uh, sometimes that doesn't happen. I'd like to just add that uh, I'm, I'm an earth scientist, not a climate scientist, so I appreciate those that uh, have the credentials to speak informed about it. I looked at IPCC for 
what they came up with. But that aside, let's say that uh, we just don't know if it's true or not that human activities uh, contributing to global warming. Do we want to bet on being uh, wrong and take a position of not changing our ways, or do we and, and uh, have those kind of consequences, which are global and uh, drastic, or do we want to bet on it could be right and let's change the way we live and do business over you know gradual way to get green jobs and not destroy the economy in the process. Yeah, that's certainly the environmentalist argument. The argument on the other side is if we're uncertain, as ExxonMobil likes us to think we are, do we really want to spend billions of dollars forcing these industries to change the way they do business and pass those costs on to the consumers? And maybe you won't be able, you know, you'll have to keep your air conditioning at, at 67 instead of 64 or, or whatever. There will be costs either way, obviously. Of course, ExxonMobil is sitting there again. I guarantee you on those reports saying if we do this, it's going to cost us $10 billion a year or whatever. And that's that's the immediate driving thing. And that's the thing I think people always have to keep in mind on these issues. The people who are talking about wanting to do something about climate change are thinking long-term. The people who are trying to stop anything from happening are thinking short-term. They're thinking quarterly earnings reports. That gives them a lot of motivation. Okay, well, thanks a lot uh, for coming. I hope I didn't ramble too much and uh, it was fun. Thank you for listening to Brown Bag Green Book, a lunchtime series of book discussions about environmental sustainability. To hear other podcasts, please visit www.knoxlib.org.